congratulations are in order for uh, the Kentucky fans here. I got to see the, the end of that game. It was a great game last night. Uh, and we in the Kansas Jayhawks and Wildcats here need to remember that we need to rejoice with those that rejoice, right? And all you Kentucky fans, Ryan, you need to remember you need to weep with those that weep, okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you will. Uh, speaking of weeping, the, the title for today's message actually comes from a great literary work of the 1960s. And because it's been so long and the statute of limitations is run, I can now admit that as a young boy, yes, I read Mad Magazine. And only a few of you are going to get that. Uh, but the question of what, me, persecuted, is an honest one. Uh, today we want to take a look at uh, will I be, why am I, how should I respond to, what if I'm not, and for what should I wish to be persecuted. Uh, the beatitude that we're going to take up today, uh, continuing on in Matthew 5, starts with verse 10 where it says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes on to say that those who are blessed, when, the blessed are when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you. And then it ends with rejoice and be glad. Well, to most sophisticated people, this is poco loco. Okay? You know, it just doesn't make any sense because blessedness and rejoicing mixed with reviling and persecution, a bit like oil and water. Uh, now, we all have this sense that Christians have been persecuted throughout the ages. And in fact, most of the disciples, the apostles, went to their death because of their faith. Uh, and this is one of the assurances that we have for the deity of Christ. In fact, if you spent all that time with this guy and you knew him really well, why on earth would you go to your death if you knew that he wasn't the Son of God? Especially when he's been crucified and he, you're out from underneath his watchful eyes. So, huge argument for that. But, in fact, the church was persecuted. In fact, between uh, 100 and 300 A.D., Christians were hunted down like wild beasts and put to death in the most cruel ways possible. Uh, you, we've all seen movies about Christians being fed to the lions. It was that and worse. Uh, but for you and me today, you know, I've got to admit, I don't feel much persecution. Not really. Especially when compared to that. Uh, so, we got to ask the question, is the whole topic of persecution relevant for today? Does any of this make any, have any connection to us today? Uh, well, let's first take a global perspective. I've put on your study sheet three websites and if you go to those, you will see case after case after case 
of real Christians being persecuted and tortured and put to death today. I want to warn you, though, that you don't, after looking at those websites, become insensitive or callous to the suffering of Christians. I think it was Stalin that said, one death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. And we can adopt that same kind of an attitude when we look at persecution in the church and we then realize, oh, I've got to get the kids ready for for school. Because those Christians happen to be in places that we can't see. And we tend to minimize that when there's actual suffering going on by our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you look, you will find many, many examples of persecutions of believers in, from Eastern Bloc atheists, from Muslims in several countries, and even from other Christians. About three billion people in the world live in countries under significant restrictions on their religious liberties. 60% of all Christians live in those countries. Many countries have severe state uh, interference and harassment of Christians. So the least that we can say from the global standpoint is that these words of Jesus are relevant and indeed very precious for millions of our brothers and sisters who live under the, the pressure of constant surveillance. In our part of the world, we have not known persecution on a large scale. Why? Well, frankly, because of our Christian roots, the foundations of our relatively young country, which emphasize the importance of freedom of religion in our Constitution. However, followers of Christ have never been universally free from pursuit and persecution, and as we will see later, I think we should never really hope that we're not. In many parts of the world, Christians today are imprisoned, exiled, tortured, put to death for the word of God. And before the return of Christ, many more will be seeing and feeling the hatred of the world's powers. A second reason that we should consider this relevant is taken from the word of God itself. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul tells us in verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay? It's a promise. So how could Paul make such a sweeping statement? The godly will be persecuted. On the basis simply of the deep conviction about the nature of Christianity and a Christ-like life as opposed to the nature of the world and the sinfulness of man. Paul is convinced that there's such a tension between those two that they're Suffering and persecution is inevitable. Finally, we know from the words of Jesus in John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus, they will persecute you. So, the words of Jesus about persecution are relevant today, not just because of the millions of Christians under persecution today, but because Jesus promises us this future. If you have any godliness in your work, in your home, in your school, in whatever you do, 
there will be a time when you will face some sort of persecution. None of us knows when our freedoms may end or when we might be called by God to a, more, to a dangerous place or called to take a stand that will make us unpopular. Uh, but it seems to me anyway that uh, the opposing worldviews have fostered a, a disdain for Christ for at least the last hundred years and probably for all of history. More, in, more particularly to, to our situation, intolerance for Christ in American institutions, in our government, in our universities and schools, and in our military has increased significantly in the last five years, if you're honest about it. Take a look at the text now. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are they? The Greek structure indicates that the objects of the persecution are those who are mentioned in verses 3 through 9 prior to this, those practicing the other Beatitudes. Now, if we're living lives as modeled and described by Christ, we will have fellowship in his sufferings, his reproach and his rejection. The Greek word for persecute there means to pursue, to harass, and to treat evilly. And interestingly, in some Greek literature, this same word is used for to prosecute. What kind of persecution brings blessing? I'm just going to touch upon this briefly and then come back to it. Not all persecuted people are blessed by God. Only those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake or on account of righteousness. Uh, Christians may suffer persecution without blessing when they are suffering for their own sakes, uh, their own pride, their own bad behavior. Uh, we all know the phrase, playing the martyr well. Uh, but blessed persecution comes upon believers because of who they are in character and in life. Jesus explains in, Mark, in John 15, you were of the world. The world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. It's the testimony of Christ within his followers that provokes resentment of at least some in the world. We're going to come back to that later. But why is righteousness persecuted? Uh, if righteousness is being merciful and pure and, and peaceable, by relying on Jesus and living for his glory, why would anybody persecute that? Isn't that all good stuff? Um, well, some believers, some unbelievers, really do appreciate that. They admire the lifestyle. But not everybody. Uh, Tertullian, who was a second uh, century apologist, said this, the first reaction to truth is hatred. And that's what we've got to contend with. If you would, open in your word, in, in the Bible, to Luke 16, and let's take a look at why persecution comes to Christians. And there in uh, chapter 16, starting at verse 13, we read, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now pay attention. In verse 14, he says, The Pharisees 
who were lovers of money heard all this, and they scoffed at him. This is the persecution. Part of his explanation, they were lovers of money. Remember, it's not money, but the love of money that is the root of all evil, and Jesus attacks their love. Then comes the rest of the explanation in verse 15. But he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. So here's the root of persecution with its two prongs. One is an an evil love or desire. And secondly, the need to justify that love. That's why the righteous are persecuted. So, when we live a life devoted to righteousness and godliness, we will be persecuted and reviled or spoken against. Because of what God, by His grace, has made the saved, we are, to some, obnoxious. Think about it. I put this on your study sheet because I think it's important. Let's take a quick look. If you're poor in spirit, you're running against the pride of the world. If you're repentant and you're mourning over your sin, uh, you're not going to be appreciated by those who would rather think that they're doing nothing wrong. If you're meek, you have a meek spirit, you don't retaliate, that doesn't sit well with the resentment and bitterness of the, of the sin nature. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, that's a rebuke to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you have a merciful spirit, you're going to appear you're going to make the, other, the rest of the world look cruel. If you have a pure heart, that will, that will contrast sharply with hypocrisy and corruption. And if you're a peacemaker, that doesn't sit well at all with the, the contentious society that we, we live in. Let's look at some specifics. We should never, ever be self-righteous. But through the eyes of resistant unbelievers, if you are chaste and Faithful, that is an attack on sexual promiscuity and infidelity. If you embrace temperance, that's a statement against alcoholism and substance abuse. If you exercise self-control in your diet, you're, you're indicting gluttony. If you live a simple life and are content, you will show the folly of covetousness for stuff. If you're punctual and thorough in your work, you'll lay open the laziness and the theft of employers' time by others. If you speak with compassion, you will throw callous and uncaring people into sharp contrast. And if you're spiritually minded, you're going to expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. So if you live like this, you will likely have been called things like Miss Goody Two-Shoes or holier-than-thou, or the the subtle, oh, he's very religious. Anybody ever heard that? Well, if you would turn to John 3. Uh, When you desire to be godly in your affairs and relationships, when you follow this righteousness that Christ sets forth in his strength and for his glory, there's two possible responses from people around you, and those are described starting in verse 19 where it says, this is the judgment that the light, we know, is Jesus Christ, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So that's the first response. Hating the light and hiding from it. That's the response that may lead to persecution. Going on, verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The other response is to receive and follow Jesus, confessing that only God can work good through us. But we ask, important question for me anyway, what about all those unbelievers around me who are not converted, but yet not hateful, maybe civil, polite, maybe even extremely nice? I think this is somewhat of a hard question for for Christians in general. I know it is for me. One possibility, unfortunately, is that we may have our light hidden under a bushel. Perhaps we are keeping the stumbling block of the cross well hidden under the couch. Uh, Maybe we don't allow our distinctive values and our convictions to show when we're in polite company. Think about political correctness and how that has affected what we say in the company of unbelievers. We really have to ask ourselves a serious question. If it became a crime to publicly profess faith in Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict us? I am sobered by the words of uh, the author of Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We never know who we're talking to. In Luke 12, verse 8, it says, Also I say to you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of God, Son of Man, also confess before the angels of God. But he that denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Huh. Now, on the other hand, if we are genuinely allowing our light to shine, people around us may be moving toward hatred and persecution, or they may be moving closer to God. Yet we see the, the former in several times in the Gospels where the Pharisees were angered by what Jesus said, but they were hindered by expediency from expressing their anger in outright persecution. What do we do when we see neither persecution nor conversion? We lovingly persevere. In the military, when... when uh, An enlisted man would salute, an officer has to return the salute and promptly say, carry on, because you don't want that guy to be wasting time saluting. You want him to do his job. We need to simply carry on in doing what Jesus tells us to do. Neither persecution nor conversion may necessarily happen immediately. So, if we should all examine ourselves to make sure we're not playing some sort of kind of cowardly Christian incognito. And at the same time, we should, if we are, we should repent, resolve to get real in the expression of who we are. 
At the same time, we must not assume that just because there's no persecution and, no, and few conversions right now, that the fault must lie with us. The gestational period for the new birth may be nearing a happy end, or the storm clouds may be gathering for you and for me. Now, how should you and I respond to persecution? Uh, going on in, in, in Matthew 5.11, it says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, that's a bit shocking, as we mentioned before. What can possibly justify the command to be glad when we are hated, mocked, and tortured? And make no mistake about it, Jesus is talking about real persecution here, maybe even death. If we look backwards, we can look at the prophets, and there's passages that you can look up there about what happened to them. Jesus looked forward in Matthew 24 when he told, he warned his disciples about what was to come. He said in verse 9, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus warned that persecution would even come from religious people in John 16. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. An example would be John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a good man. He was a Baptist, and he did not conform to the Church of England, and he had such a fervor that he went out and preached the gospel outside the state-recognized church, and so he was arrested. The prosecutor didn't want to hold him. He knew John was a good man, but John said, if you release me, I will preach tomorrow. And so, John Bunyan was held for 12 years simply for preaching the gospel in a Christian nation. Well, what came of that? Only Pilgrim's Progress. Probably the most well-known allegory and usually the first book translated by Bible translators in foreign countries after they translate the Bible. Uh, so God had a purpose in persecution for Bunyan, and He's got a purpose for you and me. What can justify this counsel to people in pain? Think of it. Somebody's suffering. They're being, they've been tortured, or they're, in some way they're suffering, and we're to come forward and say, be glad and rejoice? Well, Jesus said this to his disciples, most of whom were going to be put to death. He did that because there was no doubt in his mind that the reward of heaven will more than compensate any suffering that we must endure in service to Christ. This is a mystery here. Uh, a mystery of joy in the midst of misery and groaning. This mystery is contained in the miracle of faith. The bedrock assurance that heaven is a hundredfold compensation for any suffering we could possibly experience here on earth. To the extent that you trust what Jesus tells us about heaven, 
you will be able to rejoice and be glad in suffering, for great is your reward in heaven. Now, looking at the text in verse 11, the second person plural, blessed are you, indicates that the disciples intend, or excuse me, that the disciples and we are to take this verse and apply it. The word for when is really whenever, so anytime persecution takes place. We do not know when persecution will come, but for some it came very quickly. If you'll turn over to 1 Peter 4, we want to take a look at uh, a few of the verses there. Um, Starting in verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So whenever persecution comes, we should not be surprised. It is what we have been told to expect. Going back to verse 13. But to the, the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, should we rejoice and expect God's blessing every time people revile us and speak evil against us? Look at verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or get this, a troublesome meddler. Small stuff. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... For my sake, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Similarly, in 1 Peter 2.20, for what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Even when you're persecuted and you're patient, you don't get credit if it's for you. But if when you do what is right and then suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. It's suffering for Christ. It's for righteousness. It's for doing what is right and what that's what we're going to be blessed for. Therefore, when persecution comes, we must ask the question, am I facing these difficulties because of something I did for Christ or for me? Some of the reasons that I might be not hitting the mark are pride. Pride causes contention. Disrespect results in reaction from authorities. Sometimes people mistake natural responses from others for persecution. My, my, my boss doesn't like me, you know, it, because, well, it's got to be because I'm a Christian, because I have that thing on the wall or that book on my, my desk. But... If you got a demotion or a poor evaluation as a result of poor performance or a bad attitude, eh, you know, that ain't it. You know, it's probably deserved. Um, Words. Our words uh, are powerful. The Bible says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Our words can create deep wounds and which may bring about a reaction from others. 
what we do, our deeds. Man can only judge the outside, and kids, a child is known by his doings. So if we are insensitive or we have selfish behavior, that causes others to react to us and perhaps even retaliate. Even motives. I think folks are always trying to figure out our motives, even if just subconsciously. Uh, If they sense that we're just being nice or friendly to them for our own motives, for something selfish, they will react to us. If pride or wrong words or wrong deeds or wrong attitudes are the causes of our persecution, we should not expect blessing, but rather reproof and shame. Therefore, in times of trial, self-examination is vital. And if we find any of these causes, we should make it right. What does that mean? Well, uh, even in the midst of persecution, we've got to go back and confess our sin and ask forgiveness even from them as they're persecuting us. In other words, not easy. takes humility. But if our goal is God's blessing, it will be worth it. In Proverbs 16, it tells us, when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Back in 1 Peter 4, it says in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We must clean up our own act, our own houses, our own words, our own actions first. Then in continuing in verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I want to give you a hypothetical. Uh, If things were to accelerate in America and we were faced with a situation where we had the option to stand for the truth of the gospel and face certain torture, perhaps even death, or escape to continue caring for our families as well as serving within the remnant of the church, what would you do? Now, there are some out there who I'm sure would say, you know, I want to get to glory as soon as possible. So I'm standing. Others out there would say, you know, I really love my family and we may have a purpose, so I'm out of here. Is it fight or flight? Well, you know, I don't think either of those is necessarily an ungodly view. And the the, the answer in Scripture, I think, may surprise you. Um, If you are one of those anxious martyrs, you might consider the passages that are listed there when Jesus, facing persecution, escaped to preach another day. In 2 Corinthians, uh, particularly in verses or chapters 11 and 12, we see Paul persecuted beyond our imagination, but when he was being hunted, he escaped when he could. In Acts 12, starting in verse 1, James, the brother of John, has been martyred by Herod. Peter is captured and faces the same fate, but with the help of an angel, he escapes from prison and his guards are executed. So, Do you always stand? Not necessarily. For those of you who are lovers of life and family, 
uh, you may want to turn to Acts 16. Here, Paul and Silas are falsely accused and arrested. So here's the picture. Their persecutors tear off their robes. They beat them many times. They're thrown into the inner prison, and their feet are bound in stocks. What do they do? Get their lawyers and start to complain? No, they start to praise and sing hymns, and the other prisoners are listening to them. And then all of a sudden, there's a great earthquake. The prison walls shake. The doors fly open. Their shackles are unloosed. And then picking up in verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He knew he was in big Dutch. But, but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself because we're all still here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said simply, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And in fact, he and his household were all saved. Now, it's clear here that Paul knew that the Romans had no basis for holding and certainly for beating them. But he really didn't know what was going to happen. As it turned out, the authorities had to beg Paul to leave the jail because they knew he had a great case for false imprisonment and more. So, what did Paul do? He rejoiced in persecution. He passes up a chance to escape. He wins over the jailer and his household. And then he invites more persecution. And the authorities blink. In Acts 5, we read of Peter and the apostles who were doing signs and wonders. Some folks wouldn't associate with them, but many were, were saved, uh, many were added to the numbers, and the sick were being healed. But this gets the attention of the high priest, who has them imprisoned. Again, an angel releases them and commands them to preach in the temple, which they do. High priest gets wind of this, and he, he hauls these apostles back in. Picking up in verse, seven of Acts 5, verse 27 of Acts 5, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, the name of Jesus. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood, that of Jesus, upon us. But Peter and the apostle answered. A very important statement here for all of us to remember. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and as a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Please note, that in each of these instances, God never delivers or blesses a Christian who avoids persecution by a denial of faith. There is substantial risk in being a follower of Christ. But as usual, Jesus gets the last word here. In Matthew 10, starting at verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Isn't that comforting? So be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. 
Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Okay? We'll come back to this, but... Uh, let me just ask this. It seems to me like if we're Christians, it's a no-brainer that we are to stand for Christ. But will we? Will it be easy? Uh, The Apostle Peter was never described as the senior pastor of the disciples. However, it is clear that he was the first among equals. He was a real leader of leaders. And uh, as we're approaching Resurrection Sunday, our family was going through the the, the different accounts of the things, the events leading up to uh, the resurrection. And we got to uh, uh, Luke 22 and the account of Peter. Uh, And it hit me that Peter, this great leader, must have been a bit stunned when Jesus warned him of Satan's test for Peter that was coming up. And Peter's pledged allegiance to prison or to death. But Jesus gives him the bitter truth. You will deny me three times in the next few hours. And then, Peter does exactly that. Now, if a leader like Peter can succumb, not to torture, not to the threat of death, but to peer pressure, what does that say about us? However, this is a good but here. We have an advantage because we have been warned. We have Peter's experience to learn from. And rather than make bold statements of self-righteousness and our great faith, it would be better for us to spend our time, our emotional and our spiritual energy building a resolve to stand for God no matter what. So I want to summarize here with some steps to prepare and respond for persecution. This sounds kind of basic, but the first thing is to decide if you really believe God is who He says He is and what He says in His Word. 
If you can't do that, then no reason to go on. You've got to start there. Do you really believe him? Secondly, we've got to muster, we've got to work on developing the, the courage to stand for his truth through just the, the, the little peer pressure we might receive or actual persecution. If you and I don't have a God worth dying for, do we have a God worth living for? We must continue. We must carry on speaking the truth in love as long as we can, as long as God wants to use us. And this may or may not involve escaping from persecution. We've got to trust that the Holy Spirit will tell us what to say when we can't escape. We've got to make sure that the persecution is for Christ's sake and not for my own. And then we've got to trust again that the Spirit will also tell us when it is time to take a stand and to take the persecution for God's glory and as a witness to others, whether we're released for our courageous witness or, on the contrary, we are punished, tortured, and perhaps, praise God, receive our eternal reward. This is going to be difficult and different for, for different people. Uh, Tertullian, who I mentioned before, he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in effect, he's saying that persecution and martyrdom has the effect of spreading the gospel around the world. The next question I want to raise is, do we really believe that the suffering that we might experience enlarges our rewards in heaven? Now, this seems to be the message of Matthew 19. In verse 29, it says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and, eternal and e inherit eternal life. Paul comforts in 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, if we focus on the things which are seen, like our stuff, our career, our loved ones, we might not stand when the persecution comes. We might faint in the day of adversity. Instead of receiving a far greater reward in eternity. Finally, the last point, and this is the hard one for all of us, is rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering for righteousness, for Jesus. Why? Because that very suffering will receive a great reward. The greater the suffering of your faith here on earth, the greater the reward in heaven will be. Is not Jesus saying that He wills for His disciples to desire the reward of heaven more than we desire the reward of this world? In Matthew 6, that, uh, uh, Jesus tells us that uh, we are to have our treasure not on earth, but in heaven for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
Jesus wills for our hearts to be set on heaven. And we are to leave this earth in rejoicing. The desire of Jesus is for us to have our hearts, our hopes, our longings, our joy primarily in heaven. Otherwise, it makes no sense for us to rejoice and be glad at the loss of our earthly joys. How shall we rejoice and be glad when these things are taken from us if we have not loved heaven more? We should consider the prophets of old who were persecuted and killed for the cause of God and righteousness. We should look often at at, uh, Hebrews 11 and read how by faith they suffered mocking and scourging, chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy. Imagine yourself being persecuted with them and learn how to love heaven with them. In Hebrews eleven twenty six, abused, suffered for Christ is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. For we look to that reward. Look to the prophets, look to the martyrs, whatever we must do to set our hearts in heaven and off of the world. Otherwise, you will not be able to obey the command of our Lord, rejoice and be glad in persecution. A few years ago, I'm thinking probably eight or so, I went to see a movie. I think it was called The End of the Spear. Anybody remember that movie? All right. And as we went to the movie, uh, as Yogi Berra would say, it was like deja vu all over again. And then I remembered that several years before that, I had a missionary couple in my office do a power of attorney or something like that, and they started to talk about their story, and the maiden name of the wife was Saint. And I thought, that's a great name. Wow. But she explained that her relative was a guy named Nate Saint. And he and a guy named Jim Elliott and some others flew a little airplane into a place, I think it was in Ecuador, to try to witness to a tribe that was known for their indiscriminate killing of each other. And in fact, when they landed, the tribe attacked them. They did not defend themselves, and they were all killed. You think, what a waste. But God thought otherwise. God brought, as this lady was telling me, God brought their wives and others back to those people. And those people remembered how these men who had landed there did not resist, did not try to fight. And so they wanted to know what was different about them. And in fact, their tribe was brought to Christ. And they even brought the man who murdered Eliad or Saint, I can't remember which, back to the United States as a believer. There at the bottom, you see a quote from Jim Elliott. It says, He who is no fool gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint now have something 
they will never lose. Should we not steal our faith, temper our courage, trust in Him no matter what we face? So we may have confidence that it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. In a few moments, we will all remember the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the Lord's table. These biblical passages, I know, are not warm and fuzzy. They may make you uncomfortable, but unfortunately, they are there. And this is a reality with which we must deal. The question is, can we trust, can we count on Jesus Christ doing just as he promised? Lord God, we are weak, we are miserable creatures, we often fail, but Lord, please work in us through your Spirit the courage to stand for truth, to stand for you. And when persecution comes, whether in subtle peer pressure or in name-calling or perhaps in restriction of our liberties or perhaps in physical harm or maybe even death, Lord, make us true to You. Work in us Your abiding grace so that we might love our persecutors and show them that no matter what, You love them as well, even if they hate You. Thank You, Father. For this privilege we have of being your ambassadors here, come what may. In Jesus' name, amen.